Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining today. We've got Guy Talk on board, or guys who talk, so we're looking for your questions. Let me know what you have for us today. 877-933-2484. We've got a great power panel today. We've got Dr. Greg Borgon, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Jeff Verdorn. So we've got Dr. B., Tom P. and Jeff V. That's the, that's the team. <laughs> I like We've it. got a professor, a pastor, and a Sunday school teacher. I like it. That's the panel. So whatever questions you have for us, let me know. 877-933-2484. This week, we were chatting a little bit with a guest. I was about encouragement, affirmation. What do you guys know about affirmation and encouragement versus something like a compliment? Mm-hmm. What is the difference? Well, affirmation means you're affirming something that actually exists. And and so people know that whether or not you're pulling their chain when you give them a compliment, <laughs> um, affirming them for what you've observed in them, they'll resonate with that. Um, they may be surprised that somebody else saw it in them, but you affirm what's already there. And, and in itself, the affirmation is an encouragement to them because in today's life, uh, very few people uh, enjoy affirmation. Or encouragement is just the opposite. So when they get it, it's something new and something that's uh, welcomed. It is a powerful tool. And after all my years of ministry, I have seen that leaders and others who take the time, even with children, to affirm them, to compliment them, to tell them that they are chosen by Jesus and they have a purpose, it has a long-term effect and it's very powerful. So I encourage you, do it every chance you can, even if you're out eating you know, to your waiter or waitress, whatever, say whatever positive you can. And it's amazing how the door opens up to be able to talk about other things, including the gospel. You know, another reason why we should encourage one another is because God tells us to encourage one another. First Thessalonians 5 says this, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. So it's yeah. one of the one another's uh, in scripture. There's many one another's to love one another, to serve one another, to uh, encourage one another, to bear each other's burdens, and so on. So God also tells us to do just that. You know, I wonder if the lack of it today is due in no small measure to the absence of the amount of time necessary to learn about somebody. In other words, um, what we are calling friends today are really acquaintances, not really close friends. So do you take the time to spend time with somebody? So uh, you can identify those things that can be affirmed and they can be encouraged about. And so the lack of it, I think, is just an, a lack of knowledge of who you're dealing with and who you're aware of. Or Sometimes aware these of. practical skills, you know, like the one another passages, are something that we need to be really affirming and teaching even in the church. You know, it's, it's just, I always teach the gospel. I always teach the way of salvation. I always talk about repentance of Jesus. But then how do you live this out? And it is the practical process of living it out that makes, I think, all the difference in the world. And I encourage people to do that. Mm-hmm. 
All right, gentlemen, let's go be first century <clears throat> Christians, and we are in the idol's temple, and we are uh, uh, eating sacrificed meat that's been sacrificed to idols. As it talks about in First Corinthians chapter 8, how we uh, should not become a stumbling block to somebody, not lead them into sin. Explain what you understand that to be. You know, it's interesting because Paul makes it clear that actually eating this meat is really nothing at all. Right. What is an idol? It's meaningless. But he says, but but if you're offered it, and it means somewhat, something to the person who's offering it to you, and then he says, well, then don't eat it, not for your own sake, but basically for his. You're saying, no, you're sacrificing to this God, this idol who's a false God. I worship the one true God who makes the heavens and the earth. You know, there's this passage... I, Old Testament passage, I think it's in Isaiah, where God says, you know, you take some wood and with some of it, you carve out an idol. And with the rest of the wood, you start a fire and cook your food. And then you bow down to this idol and give it thanks. And and God's basically saying, how silly is that? Right? Thank God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. So I think, look, if something sacrificed to an idol... Uh, it, it's meaningless spiritually. So you can eat or not eat whatever you want, but don't do it for their sake, not for yours. All right. Any more thoughts? Let's talk about idols because we don't, do we understand what idols are today? We have a lot of them. Well, I know. But I don't think most people could define it as an idol. I think Augustine says our hearts are idol manufacturing facilities. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So we, we just generate idols. You know, we don't call them that I have an idol or I have a God, small no. g, that I serve. No. However, whatever you give your thought life to, your time to, your energy to, whatever is on your mind uh, on a regular basis, is something that you're ultimately going to serve because it drives you from within. And that's why as Christians, disencouraging one another, openly talking about our faith in Jesus, um, not being afraid to talk about the love of Jesus on a regular basis is so important because everything else will eat up our time. And it can be money. It can be a variety of things. Uh, it's a terrible trap to get into. But we're all guilty of it, and we have to fight against that and not let that happen. Yeah, I think the idea of, you know, the passage in, that Jesus says in Matthew in, in his famous servant sermon, he says, store up your treasures in heaven uh, because not on earth, because where your treasure is, that is where your heart is also. In the end, uh, an idol is a, a a distraction for the attention of your heart. You're to set your mind on things above, fix your eyes on Jesus, and worship him alone. And anything that distracts to that can be described as an idol, like you were saying, Tom. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when you take a look at, again, Romans chapter 1, uh, even beginning with verse 18, it talks about the fact that what what are candidates for idols? It's for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, but God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they, and this is important, for although they knew God, they did not honor him mm-hmm. as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Notice the progression here. Foolishness and their futile in their thinking, and then their hearts become darkened, their beliefs, values, attitudes, and motives. Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images 
resembling mortal man in birds and animals and creeping things. And sometimes, especially in, in the U.S., uh, we make idols of ourselves. We set ourselves <laughs> above yeah, good point. And, and make an idol of ourselves. So anything that um, doesn't support what our uh, perceived notion is that gives us a sense of identity and being, um, then anything that doesn't do that, we, we push it away because we have to be lifted up. So we make ourselves an idol, an arbitrator of anything that is of value based through, you know, processing it through our own grid. Can I read this? This passage I was referring to is from Isaiah sure. 44. Let me just read a portion of it. He says, uh, half the wood he burns in, in the fire, over it he prepares its meal, and he roasts his meats and eats his fill, and he warms himself by this fire. I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. And here's 18. You said in that Romans 1 verse that, that God calls them fools. Well, listen yeah. to 18, verse 18 here in Isaiah 44. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. You know, we have to ask ourselves, um, what are we giving our attention and our focus to? How, are we, what, how much time are we given to something other than living out a life of godliness and worshiping our Creator? And so those are all potentials. Not that just because we're involved in something else means it's an idol, but when we submit to it, when we adhere to it, when we listen to it, um, it it's easy to become an idol. And I mentioned it before, the three questions people ask are, are often asked on their deathbed. And the second one is always, you know, why didn't I spend more time with the people I love? The reason is we have too many idols in our life. And Jen and I watched a program on the History Channel on the, the wealthiest people in the United States, the Vanderbilts and the others. They made billions of dollars, and they had the most miserable families that turned against hmm. one another because money became the goal, not the relationships, not the family, not the people. And in the end, when you come to the end of your life, you know you can't throw it in the coffin with you. You're just simply going to go, but you don't go with the love of your family. What is it to gain the whole world? And forfeit your forfeit your soul. Mm-hmm. Mark eight thirty six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So never love something that is not going to love you back. Money doesn't. <laughs> money doesn't love you back. It can't. It can't. Fame can't love you back. It's sad. What else? What are other idols that rise to the surface? Uh, yeah, uh, how we go ahead and and focus our energy in terms of our occupations and. Uh, what we seek to achieve could potentially become not that achieving anything is wrong, but if the in the achievement of that thing we give our attention and neglect other areas of our life, especially our spiritual well-being, then that becomes an idol. Our job can become an idol, um, even an ideology, a, a, a false worldview, a worldview that uh, doesn't attribute. Uh, anything to our creator, but living our life on a horizontal plane devoid of any interrelationship with your heavenly father, anything on that horizontal plane becomes an idol. I had a real life experience on this bill. Uh, My brother was 10 years older and his girlfriend, Julie, won a contest, beauty contest. And she lived with us for a year when my brother was in the army. Well, the contest she won was by Jerry Lewis. So she went to be in a Jerry Lewis movie out in Hollywood. Oh, wow. And then she was one of Elvis's girls, and they've got pictures of her with Elvis. 
and I knew her quite well, and we had a good relationship, but she was so driven to go to Hollywood. Well, she went out there. She never got married. She had a variety of people in her life, never married my brother, with a variety of men. Toward the end of her life, she died of cancer. Toward the end of her life, she actually got a hold of me. And now I'm an adult, I'm a pastor. And she said, you know, I pursued all the wrong things. Mm. And now I've come to the end of my life and I've got nothing to show for it. Mm. And I'll tell you, that hit me so hard that it has driven my ministry uh, from that point on to keep that in mind as I deal with people that are focused in the wrong way. You guys just described some of the things of this world. Some have described it as the the four uh, uh, pleasures of the fortune, fame, power, and pleasure. Pretty much anything in this world can be summed up into one of those four categories. If you are pursuing something other than the Lord, most likely they fit into one of those four categories and is therefore an idol. Well, I mean, you take a look at even attitudes or emotions like pride or self-centeredness or or greed, or gluttony, or a love for possessions. Uh, I mean, it's ultimately a rebellion against God, and it tries to replace God. So we have to make a decision. Who's going to be on the throne of my life? Who am I going to submit to? Whose flag am I going to fly? To whom am I going to give my allegiance? When it's anything else but God, His Word, the finished work of Christ, and the empowerment of the Spirit, then it's idolatry. If it's on the throne of our life, that kind of determines how we live our life and how we see life instead of God being on the throne of our life. Most of the older people I've worked with who are coming to the end of their life or have a disease and they know they're not going to live long, the one thing I hear out of them over and over and over is regret. They have great deep regrets in their life for what they put their life on, what they focused on, what they did, and the things that they see now of value at the end of their life they don't have any, there's nothing left to do. They can't go back and undo it. One addendum real quick. Yeah, please. The, some, you know, notice what all these have in common. One of the things we didn't talk about were images of Jesus hanging on your wall or movies depicting him or whatever. Sure. Some Christians, just a little side note here, some Christians say that any depiction of Jesus, you know, in art, movies, whatever, is an idol. And I, I don't, I don't tend to agree with that because an idol is something that you has your heart's attention. Everything that we've talked about here had to do with the heart and where you're setting your mind and your heart. I don't think if you're not worshiping the image of Jesus that's up on your your wall, um, you know, the the image there's a famous image of Jesus with children around him and I know a number of people of rel- older relatives of mine who had that hanging in their kitchens, right? Sure. They weren't worshiping that picture. They were worshiping the risen Lord and I don't think those things are idols. So just that one note. Well, all idolatry of self at its core involves the three lusts that you find in 1 John 2.16, for instance. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So when we focus our energies and and, um, going after these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life— We've made whatever it is an, an idol in our life. When I have Jim Wallace on, Jay Warner Wallace, he was a homicide detective in Los Angeles for 25 years. He said every crime, 100% of crimes, is based on money, sex, or power. Oh, yeah. Every one of them. Yeah, yeah. Just trace it to one of those three. <laughs> well, well there's, there's and, and it goes right back to First John 2, 16, for the lust of the world— the lust of the flesh, you were just talking about that, the sex, lust of the eyes, which is, you know, materialism, and then the pride of life. 
Um, so he's hitting on these three mm-hmm. different lusts that are in the soul of every human being. Yeah. As I look at Psalm 63, verse 3, it says, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Mm. And as believers, we should definitely all say, without apology, that, God, you are infinitely better than all of your gifts to me. Mm. Mm -hmm. One older lady in my church one time said to me, she goes, you know, we were talking about idols in Sunday school. Afterwards, she says, you know, I've come to realize growing up on the farm, we had a lot of rats. But she said, we found that if we could attract the rats, what tickled their eyes, and it was a big piece of cheese in a trap. All they could see was the cheese. They never saw the trap until it was too late. Mm-hmm. And she said, how often do I do that in my life? And we do that in our lives. I thought that was a good point. Yeah. So that was your grandparents? Yeah. Like, no. They no, would that, use that rat was, traps? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. I'm so disturbed all of a sudden. All right. We're going to take a break. Lots more guy talk ahead. Let me know what questions you have for the power panel. We've got Dr. B, Tom P, and Jeff V. That's the team. Let me know. 877 933 2484 877-933-2484. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. This is where we try to answer your questions. So send them over, 877-933-2484. Question about the Bible, a question about a sermon you heard at church maybe two years ago that you're still scratching your head over. Let us know. We'd love to We'd love to talk about it. We'd love to at least discuss it amongst ourselves. 877-933-2484. Uh, gentlemen, there are some denominations that believe that by being baptized, you're saved. Do you know what scripture they're using to back this? Yeah. Uh, I was just looking at that the other day. Okay. There, is, there is terminology that sounds like that. But as a Lutheran, I always put the emphasis not on the baptism, but on Jesus and the covenant with him. And that as you get older, you have to keep walking with him. It's not just a done deal mm-hmm. when you were done baptized younger or even older. But I'm trying to remember. Guys, help me. What's that passage? There's one that well, there's talks one in, about that. in Mark, Mark 16, where it says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so some will take that and say that part of the requirement for salvation is not just simple belief, but believing and being baptized. One of the issues with that passage is that if that is the case, if baptism, water baptism was required for salvation. Well, then every single place that God describes salvation should in, therefore include not only believing, but also being baptizing, uh, being baptized. So if you look at John 3.16, for God so loved the world, mm-hmm. he gave his only son, whoever believes in him, it would have to say, and be baptized, shall not perish, but have eternal life. But it doesn't say that. Yeah. I think one of the other places is, is Ephesians 4.5, 
where it says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now here, I think the question is, what baptism are you talking about? Are you talking about a water baptism or are you talking about what Jesus described as being baptized by the Holy Spirit, which in Acts chapters uh, 10 and 11, we we can clearly see that being baptized with the Holy Spirit is receiving the Holy Spirit. So that baptism is required for salvation, being baptized by the Holy Spirit, not baptism with water. Yeah, yeah two points. It, 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 if, if baptism is a requirement for salvation, how could any presentation of the gospel lack a mention of it, for one thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the second thing is is that people who believe that they're saved through baptism, it's called um, uh, baptismal regeneration. So that what they're doing is they're adding to the finished work of the cross, of what Christ accomplished at the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. And they're saying, not only do you have to uh, embrace that, believe in that, trust and rely on and cling to that, but to seal the deal, you have to be baptized. So we're adding some a work to the finished work of grace. So even if from that point of view, uh, you, you would have to come to the conclusion it does not regenerate. More than anything else, it's just simply an outward declaration that you intend to live your life differently because of what Christ has done in and through you. That you're burying the old, you're, you, you're taking what you understood yourself to be, you're laying it down at the foot of the cross, and you're picking up who God created you to be and to live in accordance with what he sees already in you, what he ordained for you before you ever came to be, when he superintended your formation in your mother's womb and he knew you before you ever were. That's one, that's one strong strand of Christianity. There is another strong strand. And the other one says this, baptism is equivalent to circumcision in the Old Testament on the eighth day. You didn't have to be a believer as a Jew to be circumcised and then be held accountable to the covenant by the prophets. You were automatically in. They're saying this is very similar here. And as I've looked at, and I'm sure all of you have read the early church fathers, there are 19 passages that talk about Peter and John baptizing infants, as much as that drives everybody crazy. But that's not the Bible, but that's the first, second, third century. Then you got Galatians 3.27. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ— and it's the Greek word that we use for baptism immersion, baptismo. So mm-hmm. it's it's not as clear, and I'm not saying, I think we're all right, but it's not as clear as I think we'd like it. And I think in this regard, as Christians, we have to put the emphasis on Jesus and his, say, blood, and not divide ourselves over whether we've been baptized this way, that way, at this age, or that age. So let's talk about the practice of baptizing once the, in Scripture, the The examples of water baptism are when someone has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and, according to Scripture, been saved, then they are baptized with water as a way—baptism, by the way, in the first century was a way of affiliating yourself with a particular group or movement or belief system or whatever. And so you are are identifying with Christ in this baptism. You're saying, I'm now one of his, and that's the call in Scripture to be baptized, a promise by God that you are now a believer. The change that has occurred to you— you cannot see, but you can see the external act of being baptized, which is why, by the way, immersion is traditionally thought of as the way to be baptized because of the, the death, burial, and resurrection that we have received through faith in Christ is represented in our water baptism. We go down in the water, our death and burial, and then come up out of the yep. water being raised in newness of life. 
Uh, so that's how it can be practiced. I understand there's some Christians sure. that see it more of a covenant or promise uh, by God of this promise of salvation, uh, and, and but but many also see it as something the Lord calls you to do once you have believed and are saved. Okay, let me just jump back in as a Lutheran here for the okay. fun of it. <laughs> what we call it, Old and New Testament. That's not the correct terminology. It's Old Covenant, New Covenant. But most of us Protestants don't talk about covenants anymore. And yet the whole Bible is a covenant document. And I would think that, I I agree with you, Jeff, I understand what the early church Mm -hmm. did and the practice of it, but I think the one thing we've got to come to grips with is that we all, all of us, and this is where I wish we could sit down, Baptist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, and honestly talk in depth, because there are things you guys teach me I've never heard before, and hopefully I could say something you've never heard before either. But the point is, that's how we learn from one another. But the emphasis, and this is what I want to get across, the emphasis is on the blood of Jesus Christ and submitting to him. If you don't do that, then you're in deep trouble. Would, would you agree, though, that there is no impartation of grace by being baptized? Impartation of grace. I don't know if being brought into a covenant is impartation of grace well, what I mean is, is that there's nothing sacred that happens at that moment that is spiritual in nature other than an acknowledgement of living a life differently. I mean, even when... Sure, when, I know what you're saying. Yeah. So, well, more than half of Protestantism believes that there is something sacred going on. That's why you've got the Orthodox, you've got the Roman Catholic, you've got so many that say something has really happened in baptism with God's grace now. I'm not that kind of a Lutheran that pushes that because I don't see that as necessary because I've seen too many people, too many of my classmates that were baptized like I was when I was a young kid, but never responded to Jesus. They don't live for him. They don't talk about him. They don't think about him. That's the core question right there. I it think. is. And and there's the, the mistake we're making. And I think that I make, and I think most Lutheran pastors make, is that we get into this mindset, well, you were baptized. No, no. Jesus reached out to you. I mean, I look at it this way, and we talked last week about being born again. I can't make myself born again. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the same concept. However, can you be baptized and then still reject Jesus? I see a lot of people do that all the time, and that's a problem. And uh, I, So that's why I have baptized in rivers. I've baptized adults as well as everything else. Uh, Recognizing different views on baptism, I think one of the things, and this is where I think your question went to, we have to decide or or determine that there's nothing uh, about salvation involved in water, right? So uh, using your example that you just described, Mm -hmm. I'll give an example that I experienced at a funeral uh, of of someone that I knew way back when. And and the pastor Mm -hmm. said uh, in this church uh, that we know, I'll just say Bob, we know that Bob is in heaven today because he was baptized into the family of God as an infant. I would never teach that. Right. So that, I yeah. think, is the key yeah. distinction for water. It that, is a problem. That, correct, yeah. Yeah, it okay. is a problem. And that's why when, when I baptize, now I'm Lutheran, so I do baptize kids, but I, I put the emphasis on the fact that for the sponsors, as these kids grow, and as a church, we must continually tell them about Jesus and call for them to respond to him because this is not a magical act you want to think of it that way. It is an invitation into the covenant, but you still have to respond personally. And too often we don't. Yeah, I mean, when when we're baptized, um, the fact of the matter is there are witnesses that are around that to, to witness that baptism. 
When you do a dedication of a child, which is oftentimes done through, depending on the denomination, sure. can be done through baptism, what they're saying is they're asking the audience, those that know the family, to be supportive of their life as they grow to to get to a point where they receive, where they're at yeah. the age of accountability, yeah. where they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. But salvation doesn't happen at baptism. It happens when a person receives Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Let's finish on Acts 8 because we got to go to break. Do I have time to read just sure. a couple yeah. verses from Acts 8? This is the story of Philip. I love this story of Philip. He comes across this Ethiopian, and he's reading Scripture, and he says, uh, Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asks. And he says, How can I unless someone explains it to me? And so Peter then explains <clears throat> it to him in the gospel of, of Christ, and he says, uh, so now I understand what this is talking about. And he says, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? So the sequence I see in Scripture for salvation is always to be, believe, be saved, and then followed by water baptism. And here's that example in Acts chapter 8. All right. One of the things I truly love about not only this segment of my week, but listener-supported radio is we can just keep talking. <laughs> I love it. We're not cutting to commercial stuff. We have announcements that you know are associated with the station, but we're going to return to this when we come back because we got lots more talk time. So let me know what questions you have, and thank you for this last question. It's certainly opened up a lively discussion, and we've got additional questions that have come in on this topic. So we will cover this some more when we return. You are listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. The questions you can send to 877-933-2484, and we will be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Welcome to the show. It's Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. What we do in this segment is we take questions and then do our very best to answer them. So whatever questions you send over, we'll we'll get to. Uh, Lord willing, 877-933-2484. I've got Dr. Greg Borgon, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Jeff Verdorn as my power panel today. So we are ready for your questions. We Right before the break, we started talking about baptism, and I thought it was a very lively discussion and very respectful, and there's different takes on baptism, and a couple of comments have come in. Isn't that we have to be, we have to be baptized in the Spirit by Jesus? Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's a good one. And keep talking, guys. Great news. The blood of Christ is the answer. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. You know, one Bible scholar said it this way. He says, if baptism is necessary for salvation, why would Paul have said... I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except mm-hmm. Crispus or Gaius. That's in 1 Corinthians one fourteen. Why would he have? Uh, why would he have said, "For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power"? 1 Corinthians one seventeen. He goes on to say, and it's just very quickly here. Granted, in this passage, Paul is arguing against the divisions that plagued the Corinthian church. However. How could Paul possibly say, I'm thankful that I did not baptize, or 
say, for Christ did not send me to baptize if baptism were necessary for salvation. If baptism is necessary for salvation, Paul would literally be saying, I'm thankful that you were not saved, and for Christ did not send me to save. That would be an unbelievably ridiculous statement for Paul to make. Further, when Paul gives the detailed outline of what he considers the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, why does he neglect, why does he neglect to mention baptism? So finally, if baptism is a requirement for salvation, how could any presentation of the gospel lack a mention of it? Luther's small catechism, how can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the Word of God in and with the water. Right. That's right. Right. All right. Let's see. Uh, since we are saved through Jesus, do we still need to live by the laws from the Old Testament? Well, I would say no. Uh, one of my favorite classes I teach is a class called Law versus Grace, and we compare the old system testament uh, old system uh, covenant the old covenant of the law the law of moses that was given to the jews and they were to live by that law versus the new testament covenant of grace uh, law v grace set up like a court case law versus grace guess which one wins yeah and it's grace yeah. right we we're, are we're, not we are not under the we are i was just going to finish we are not under the law paul says this about a dozen times in the new testament that we as believers are no longer under the law, but under grace. We are no longer under the ceremonial law or the ju- judicial law that's outlined in the Old Testament. But the moral law, we are still um, um, bound by in the sense that it represents the heart of God. I mean, the Ten Commandments really are a description of the heart of God and direction to help us to live a life, a godly life. Now, it doesn't keeping those laws doesn't save us. We keep those laws out of obedience. It's interesting to me that in the New Testament, all ten of the commandments except one are referred to or repeated in the New Testament. And the one that's not repeated is keeping the Sabbath because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. So the moral law, I think, is still functional for us not as a means to salvation, but because we are saved. What about Acts 2.38 in respect to baptism? Every salvation experience in Acts included water baptism. How is that work and believing isn't? I'll read uh, Acts 2.38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, once again, as we mentioned previously, if water baptism was a requirement for salvation, well, then every single place that salvation is described, you would, God would have to include the requirement of baptism. And so often, for example, just give pick one of dozens of passages, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he's risen from the grave and be water baptized— you will be saved. No, doesn't it doesn't say that. say that. It's a singular requirement for salvation. How about John six twenty nine? Read it. Uh, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Yeah, so, so God's work, God's desire, God's command is for us to believe. That mm-hmm. is the singular requirement for salvation, to mm-hmm. believe in the Lord. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. We know, by the way, that faith is not a work— Because Paul in Romans chapter 4 declares this, To him 
who worketh not, I'll say it in the King James, <laughs> but believeth on him, to him it will be credited as righteousness. His faith will be credited as righteousness. So faith is not a work as defined by God. As a Bible student, I still scratch my head because in the book of Acts, there are numerous occasions, like it says here, um, and they brought them into their house and set food before them, Acts 16, and he rejoiced along with his entire household, and he believed in God. Your entire household will be saved, it says in Acts 18. It's, it's, we don't get a clear definition on what this means by whole household. Does that mean only the kids who were 12 years of age or had you know, the, the ability to understand were part of that or not? We don't know. And so I can't make a definitive statement on it one way or the other. What I do know is this, that if we don't put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ— we're in trouble. Yeah. Now, the passage that you originally uh, read, Bill, that talked that seemed to indicate that baptism was was best uh, was absolutely necessary. Um, the baptism. We've got to ask the question: What kind of baptism? I think Jeff, you already mm-hmm. mentioned it. Are we mm-hmm. talking about? Are we talking about water baptism or baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is meant by that? The baptism of the Holy Spirit made, is defined as that work whereby the Spirit of God places the believer into union with Christ and into union with other believers in the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit was predicted, by the way, by John, the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, and by Jesus before he ascended to heaven. Mm -hmm. He says, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this promise was fulfilled at the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For the first time, people were permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and their church had begun. So I think that passage that you read, Bill, is referring to the baptism of the Spirit. Yeah. yeah. And, and as I mentioned earlier, chapter Acts 10 and 11, when Peter is talking to Cornelius' house, <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit comes upon those who believed, right? And, and that Holy Spirit came upon them. When Peter is explaining that to the disciples, he says, then I remember what the Lord said, that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. If they received the same gift we did, meaning the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. what was I to do to stop them? So yeah. therefore, we know 100% that the, the concept of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is receiving that Holy Spirit, as Greg, as you just described, at the moment of salvation. And this is where, again, I wish we could sit down with all the denominations and talk, because there is such do. division. Yeah, I do. <laughs> there is such division over the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, I was part of the charismatic movement for a long time, and although I did not agree with a lot of the charismatic theology, this was a big one, that if you didn't speak in tongues, you did not mm-hmm. have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, yes, when some received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they did speak in tongues. But Paul says, hey, not all of you are going to speak in tongues. Not all of you are going to prophesy. So if that is a requirement, then I think we've got a problem on our hands. But it isn't a wholesale requirement in Scripture. What is the requirement is that without the Holy Spirit, you can't even believe in Jesus. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. And if you believe in Jesus, if you can publicly confess Jesus is Lord and Savior, you know, and from your heart— you have the Holy Spirit. Now, how does the Holy Spirit manifest itself? Well, sometimes dramatic things happen. People may speak in tongues. People may prophesy. People may heal. Great. But it's really the presence of the Spirit on his own. You're receiving a gift of grace at the moment of salvation. Adding anything to it is uh, inundating and diluting it with works. And so consequently, when we add another requirement, whether it's what you're talking about, Tom, in terms of a requirement that you must speak in tongues or a requirement that uh, you must be baptized before you're really saved, 
then what we've done is we've polluted the gospel, which is a work of grace, and we've made it a work of works. That's true with anything you try to add to it, mm-hmm. be it a sacrament, be it a tradition, be yep. it a, a work. Anything that you add to faith is outside of God's plan of salvation, which is by faith alone. I have a binocular at home. I like to hunt, and so instead of binoculars, I have a monocular, which means one. And it doesn't have a zoom on it. It's just like a five times. Well, you know what? And I'm in a crowd of people. I put that on somebody. I'm really only seeing one at a time because it's got to fit in the middle. When Jesus is not the focus and what he has done of everything we do, and we drift any other direction— and demand you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to overhear. We've missed the point. He is the the focus, and he's the only one we need to focus on. And that's why the thief on the cross didn't have to do any of these other things. He just right. knew he was going to paradise Amen. today by believing in Jesus. Good word picture. Pretty awesome. We'll take a break and be right back with lots more Guy Talk. Thank you for your questions. Keep them coming. 877-933-2484. The 71st question today gets a free puppy. So let's... Uh, <laughs> Let's not lose out on that tremendous offer. What? Why is shaking his head like that? I do not, not condone, condone that message. All right. All right. No. Well, whatever. <laughs> White's in charge. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter... Thank you so much becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. All right. We never slowed down during the break. <laughs> I, you, I, need a, I need a break now that we're back in the show. I need a break from us. Yeah. Uh... White goes, all right, you guys stop talking. We've got to get back on the air. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just had a follow-up question to... Uh, question that came in earlier about the laws of the Old Testament commandments. Do we still have to follow those? So that was the follow-up question. So what, what do we do? We don't have to, we don't have to follow those Ten well, Commandments? Let me, let me just outline this really, really quick, really brief. I think that as we, like I mentioned, between the systems of law and grace, we are now under grace, which means we are no longer under the law. So Paul says multiple times, Romans 6, he says, uh, we are not under the law. In Romans 7, that he says the law only has authority over man as long as he lives. And by the way, we have died through the law, through the body of Christ, he says later in, in Romans 7. And so that we've died to the law, we have been released from the law, we've been set free from the law. In Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Paul makes it clear that I myself am not under the law. Um, uh, I died to the law, Galatians 2, so on and so forth. So so I don't tend to divide the law into moral and ceremonial and religious different categories and so on. I think all of the law is fulfilled in us. Christ came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled all of the law, and I think Christians are no longer under the requirements of the law. Now, this is this is not a salvation issue. This is once you're saved— should we follow the law or not? I think we live in a new way by grace and not by law. And some will say, well, what does that mean? Should, can you just go on lie and steal and not follow the Ten Commandments? Of course not. You've died to sin, Romans 6 says. How can you live in it any longer? But you don't do it, I don't think, because of the command. 
You do it because you have the Spirit of the living God dwelling within you. And if you keep in step with the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul says when the command comes, do not covet, it stirred up every covetous desire in him, right? I think that's what laws and commands do. Uh, But I get that some of us just tell me what to do and what not to do, and I'll be good with that, Mm -hmm. right? But I think living by faith, living by the Spirit, is actually different from that. Now, Well, the, the, the Ten Commandments, as you point out, Jeff, is not a means towards salvation, whether or not you fulfill every one of the commandments, now you garner salvation. It has nothing to do with it. That's why it's we're no longer under that kind of a law, yep. because that kind of a law was meant to drive you to the cross eventually. Agreed. But when you take a look at the New Testament, you find, as I point out, and I can't get beyond this, is that they're repeated in the New Testament as a moral code, as a pattern to live our life by. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6 and 1 Timothy 2, 5, it says, do not worship any other gods. In 1 John 5, 21, do not make idols. And it goes on and on and on. So you find even in Matthew a summation of that law that we're still under, that the first four, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love others as the same. So the first four commandments are summarized under that first part of loving God, and the last six under our love of others. So they don't go away. They go away as a means of salvation. They go away as a means of of, uh, burden of the law. Um, What they do give you now is a code a standard to live your life by, to give focus to your life. That's that's how I see it. See, the problem I see is that most Christians, when they say the law, only think of the Ten Commandments. Moses had 613 laws. Now, do we have to leave out pigs and not eat them? Well, in Acts, well, you know, they lowered the sheet down and ceremonial, said, rise yeah. and eat, that type of thing. Here's the problem we get into, and I, I've talked about the umbrella effect before. Those two, when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandments, and he said those two, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and body, love your neighbor as yourself. I understand that that now becomes my umbrella for understanding all these other commandments as a Christian. And the commandments now are not there to give me salvation. They're not there to make me just a better person, but they're there to help me walk as the way the Lord would have me walk. However, I don't do anything out of it to try to gain the Lord's favor. I do everything now out of thankfulness. And so, how many times have you and I failed to keep all the law? Well, the grace is we can come back and repent. And so, for a Christian, if you really focus on loving Jesus with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself, don't worry about the 613. Do that. And how do you want to be treated is the way you treat others. And how did Jesus treat people? You're in the right ballpark. This, this but, is so fascinating a discussion. Let me, let me continue with Paul here in Galatians, for example. He says, now that faith has come, this new covenant way of grace by faith, we are no longer under the supervision of the law, he says. Galatians 5, he says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. That yoke of slavery is the law. Galatians 5.18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, I get that when the... Ten Commandments, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Those are exhortations still by God, just as it would be to pray and to don't lie and to don't steal and don't lust and don't repay evil for evil and so on and so forth. But do you see, I'm making an argument that these are no longer commands. They are no longer the laws of God. They're still 
part of who God is. God didn't. God didn't decide. Hey, let's make a command: do not lie, and let's you know, or let's flip a coin. Should should I allow lying or not? No, it's part of his nature and character that he is a truth God. He, there's no lie in him. So of course, the command of the Old Testament law is going to reflect his nature and his character, and so it still does to this day. But it's this attitude that do we live by the law? Or do we live by faith in him? Yeah, but these these commandments are not suggestions or recommendations. Uh, they're part of God's moral uh, uh, being. They represent that. Well, it's true that, that Christ, you know, fulfilled the law on our behalf, which you're pointing out, Jeff, which mm-hmm. is Matthew 5.17. The New Testament is clear that believers should not violate God's moral law because of their standing in grace. Romans uh, 6.15. So the idea, this is God's moral law. It's a summation of his moral law. And I'd have to look up the Greek, but I I suspect that where they're repeated in the New Testament, you're going to find some Greek imperatives in them as well. That uh, they are a command that that, kind of lays the framework of how we're to live our life. Not that it gains us salvation, but it represents the fact that we're a member of God's family, we're under new management, we're given a new passport, we belong to the kingdom of God, and here's how the people of the kingdom of God are to live their lives. Maybe instead of calling it laws in the New Testament, we should go with Solomon and call it biblical wisdom. Hmm. The laws become wisdom on how to live, how to treat your neighbor, how to treat yourself, how to deal with other people. But it has nothing to do with our Selvitic relationship with Jesus in the sense that we're trying to get it. Now we're just living out of wisdom to say, I want to live a good life and I want to be a blessing. And the Lord's already told me how to do that. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. And for all of our listeners, Jeff, I just got to ask you, what's the one commandment out of the 10 that's not in the New Testament? Uh, It's the Sabbath. You mentioned it. So so a lot of people will say, well, we're under the Ten Commandments. We're not under all the festivals and feasts and ceremonial and sacrifice law and all that kind of stuff. But we're still under the Ten. And I say, well, okay, well, what about the command to keep the Sabbath? Yeah. And and are we still keeping that today? And I don't know that, uh, Greg, you wouldn't even say that we were required to continue to keep the Sabbath. No, no, because the Sabbath is Jesus' rest. All right, we're, I bartered for more time, so we're going to get a whole other hour of guy talk. <laughs> I talked to the person in charge, and this is the good news. So keep your questions coming, 877-933-2484. Wyatt might be changing his mind about the puppy as well. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.